Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. Title of my message is Say It Like You Mean It. Say it like, have you ever said that to anyone before? Anybody in here? Say it like you mean it. If you have kids, you have definitely said this to them. And this is where I found myself saying it. I have three kids uh, with my wife, Gretchen, and, uh, and, and no children outside of her. Uh, I just want to make that clear. Um, and uh, this is the three of them. And this is, this is what happens when we tell them, smile for a picture, right? Cohen is generally like, you know what? Maybe a little bit more. Zeke, it's like, maybe a lot less, Okay. And Tegan, it's like, yeah, that's about right. So uh, this is the first take. And, uh, and of course, we're like, let's go with that one. Let's not go with the one where they got it right. This is them, you know? And they're great. They're phenomenal. I love them. They're hilarious. Um, and also, they fight, okay? They, they get on each other's nerves. And they get into it. And I would say all three of our kids are smart and witty and good at reasoning. Like it's the curse of the Smith family, I guess. And we love that when they use it elsewhere, not when they use it against us and each other, right? It's like, I love that you're good at arguing. Take that somewhere else. Start a business with it. Become a lawyer. Don't fight your brother and argue your mom, okay? And there are times when they'll get into it and we have to, of course, break it up and send them to their rooms, and I got to talk to them, and tell them about, and talk about why it was wrong, and do you think you should have done that? No, I don't think I should have done We talk through the whole thing, and then we have this moment that every parent has experienced, where you get both kids in front of each other once again, and they've both done horrible things to one another. They've said things they should have said. They tried to punch each other. They tried to hit each other with a large object and potentially murder the other person, right? And they're face-to-face, and you say that thing that all parents say. Now, say you're sorry, right? And of course, if your kids are like my kids, it never goes like I want it to the first time, right? It's never, it's never, it's usually just like, sorry! And I'm like, you know what? That's, call me crazy. Didn't feel like you meant it, okay? <laughs> felt like maybe, I don't know that I was getting the heartfeltness that, and I'm like, try it. Again, let's try it again, okay? And they'll be like, okay, sorry, right? And like, it's four or five times back and forth, right? And I'm just gonna like, listen, it's not, nobody's believing it. Nobody's buying into it, right? And usually my kids will fight back to me. This is where they use their skills of logic and they're just like, I did what you said. You said, say sorry, I said sorry, okay? I technically, I did what you said. Is that the way your kids exclamate things too? Like when they've run out of things to say, but they're still angry, it's just, you know? Like, what was that at the end? That was weird. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, technically you did, but also you didn't. And when you're a kid, it's really hard to wrap your mind around this. How did I do it, but not do it? Right? As we get older, we're able to see the nuance in things. We're able to see that like, yeah, you kind of did, but not really. You technically did, but not completely, right? You, you, you did it, and yet somehow completely missed the point of doing it, right? Um, and, and this bothers us. 
on many levels in many different situations and applications, right? Why does this discrepancy make a difference? I think it's because we all have this deep desire to see someone's actions match their intentions. Like we, we don't want, no matter what you do, we don't want you to get off on a technicality. We want you to act with integrity and sincerity, That is the way in which we're made. These are the expectations that we bring with us to other people. In other words, what you do and what you mean to do both matter. And we get this at every level of society, right? Uh, the, The action is important and makes a difference and we can hold people accountable to it, but also the intentions are important and make a difference and we hold people accountable to them. This is why there is a different sort of, uh, you know, sentence for like intentional premeditated murder, right? Where the actions and the intentions are synced up and why like manslaughter is different, right? Where you committed the action, but you didn't mean to do the thing, right? Both things are significant. And we understand this like from a logical perspective. This is why half-hearted apologies don't pass, why we don't accept them, because we get that making amends means saying you're sorry, but also being sorry and also acting sorry, right? We understand that as parents, which is why when we don't get this, this sort of like intermeshing of all of these things sort of matching up, why we're just like, no, 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 do it again. Sorry, do it again. No, do it again. I'm sorry. You know what? I'm not feeling it. More timeout. And then Gretchen goes into timeout. Wait, what? No, not Gretchen. Just kidding, you guys. But it happens, right? This is the way things work. Now, this is why I, I bring this up. Um, week one of this series, we said that it's no accident um, that, that Jesus delivers this set of spiritual instructions to a predominantly Jewish audience on the side of a mountain. That's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And he does this intentionally because he's mimicking the ancient imagery of Moses delivering a set of spiritual instructions that come to be known, like a small part of it, the Ten Commandments, but in large portion, the law or the Torah. He gives this stuff on the side of Mount Sinai, right? So he's, he's playing on this imagery. And what the author wants us to see, he wants us to see Jesus as the new Moses. Moses was sort of the authority on what God meant and what God said and what God wanted from people. And what this author is telling us is that Jesus is a larger authority than Moses. Moses is who you would appeal to, to prove that you were right. And Jesus is outranking him. And what happens is Moses in the Old Testament, he gives the people God's sort of parental instructions. And again, we we think of these as the Ten Commandments. But by the time Jesus comes around and begins his teaching, a lot of religious people were responding and reacting to the the expectations that God have for them in a lot of the same way that a lot of kids respond to the expectations their parents have for them. Like the response of the religious people of the day was just like, I did it, okay? I technically didn't kill anyone, okay? <sighs> right? This is basically what the teachers of the law and the Pharisees are doing. They're trying to get off on technicalities, right? And, and they're wondering why it, it isn't really working. And it doesn't work because technically, you know, what you do and what you mean both 
matter. And this is why people's lives aren't functioning properly, why they're full of stress and anxiety, why religious people in this culture are worse off in some cases than the non-religious people. And everyone can see it. And so when Jesus teaches and preaches, he often revisits God's original instructions. And and yet he gets to the heart of the matter. And once he gets to the heart of the matter, he asks his followers to give their hearts to it. And he does this through a very specific ancient uh, rabbinic teaching pattern. And this is what it is. And you can see this moving forward through all of the teachings of Jesus. He'll say something to the effect of like, okay, here is the expectation we're all aware of, right? He often will say like, you've heard or you've heard it said. This is the expectation we're all aware of. But to do that actually means this. So he'll interpret it, which everyone he understands is gonna be like, well, why? So he's like, well, here's why, right? He gives him an explanation of that. Then he says, let me show you. Let me model it for you. Let me practice what I'm preaching so that you can see that I'm serious. And then comes a challenge. Now now you go mimic what I modeled, right? You go do the same thing you saw me do. And Jesus does this again and again and again. And and through all of this teaching, he's not really saying like, here's how you get into heaven when you die. Um, Because for Jesus, heaven isn't just a place you go later. It's something that you can experience in the here and now. The Jews called this shalom, right? Divine peace, balance, and wholeness. Jesus' teachings here, specifically in the Sermon on the Mount, are about how we live this life, not about where we're gonna go in the afterlife. And essentially what he's saying is, like if you want to experience a deep sense of divine peace, balance, and wholeness, shalom, in the here and now, you're gonna have to submit both your actions and your intentions to God, which is hard to swallow. And because that's such a big, enormous, philosophical, theological idea, Jesus gives lots of examples. And the first example he gives, the first thing that he runs through, the subject that he runs through, this sort of rabbinic pattern is this idea of murder, right? He's like, let's talk about killing, first of all. And this is what he says. So we're gonna read this together, make some observations that I think speak to this subject, but speak to what he's really trying to say to all these subjects. Matthew chapter five, verse 21 is where we're gonna be reading from. It says this, Jesus is speaking. He says, you have heard, right? Here's the expectation we're all familiar with, that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. But I say, like, let me tell you what it means to do that and why. I say, if you're angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. Or some of you are like, whew, that escalated very quickly, okay? From murder to anger, that's crazy, right? Because the first part, nobody's really arguing with. We're just like, don't murder, I get it. Yeah, I don't, yeah, don't do that, right? And this isn't just something that they'd heard, right? This is something that you've heard. We all are familiar with this, with this idea. Uh, you're, some of you are like, it sounds familiar. Is it from a movie? I mean, kind of a movie based on the Bible, right? It is from the Ten Commandments. It's, it's number five, actually. Thou shalt not kill, right? And honestly, this idea is not unique to the Bible. It's not unique to the Jewish people, to the Israelite people. If you look back through the halls of history, virtually every ancient society had um, some sort of a mandate against murder against the act of taking a life. 
But here's what makes Jesus' teaching on this interesting. Jesus wants us to move past just regulating our actions to redirecting our intentions. He, he, he doesn't just want his followers to commit their outer lives to him. He wants them to commit their inner lives to him as well. Because he says this multiple times. He doesn't come to destroy the law, but to deepen it. He's kind of like, listen, I think we should like keep not murdering, okay? I think that is a phenomenal idea, okay? Um, so let's do that. But also, let's go a step deeper. Let's cleanse our hearts and minds and words of anger and name-calling and cursing one another. I mean, isn't that what leads to murder in the first place? And everyone listening was just like, I mean... Yeah, but also I do a lot of that stuff. So, I mean, what am I going to do? I mean, like that, you're getting pretty like in there with things. Like, what? and what do you even mean by that? Because I feel like it could be open to interpretation, Jesus. So like, what exactly are you talking about? Which is a great question. And so let's, let's dig into what exactly Jesus means by what he's saying. Let's start with anger. What, what is anger? Anger really at its, at its core is a reactive feeling that says something is wrong that needs to be made right, okay? And not all anger is evil, right? Uh, some anger is good. In fact, if you never get angry about anything, that's, there's probably something wrong with you, okay? Because there are things that are wrong with the world, that are wrong with the way that things work. There are, there are injustices that happen that need to be set right, right? And in fact, this, this sort of healthy, holy anger is something that's called righteous anger, right? Meaning it's aligned with who God is and what God wants. But I wonder if you've ever noticed that like, when you get angry, it's always obviously righteous anger, Okay. But when other people get angry, it's mostly just because they're overly selfish jerks with absolutely no self-control, okay? They have problems, I'm on God's side, okay? I'm an agent of the Lord, they're somehow working with the devil. I haven't figured it out yet, but I will. And I've got a lot of theories and YouTube videos to back them up. Is it just me, right? It's weird how we, we tend to do this. We always assume that we're righteous and everybody else isn't. And I would tell you, when it comes to anger, what's driving it and what you do with it um, is ultimately what determines if it is healthy and holy or hellish. And I gotta tell you off the bat, you know, a lot of us incorrectly assume that everything that makes us mad makes God just as mad and that he would probably respond and react to it the exact same way we are. But in reality, God does not share all of your personal preferences and pet peeves as much as you think he does. In fact, if God thinks the same way you do on every single subject all the time, you are not worshiping God. You are worshiping an idealized version of your own self. And that's not who God is. God is bigger and better than that. In fact, this is the stuff that Jesus is saying that we ought to surrender. Jesus is speaking to a very specific category of anger that often trips up and pushes us into that like frustration over our pet peeves or personal preferences. And this type of anger is something called rage. Rage. And rage is essentially the excessive, misdirected, vengeful expression 
of your own bruised ego. It hurts when you like define it out loud, right? You're like, ugh. Like this is the part of you that takes things really personally, that, that tends to sort of mutate your passion for justice into inappropriate aggression fueled by your own pride. It's this attitude that just says like, listen, I want what I want and nothing and no one better get in my way or they're gonna pay because I'll see to it. Rage's agenda is essentially the self. Its aim is to eliminate anything in your way to retaliate against any threat to your security, whether real or imagined, and to avenge any insult or injury to your ego. It's that voice inside of you that says like, listen, if you dishonor me, if you, if you disrespect me, if you damage my reputation, <laughs> I will make you regret it. Test me. It convinces you, in fact, that you are perfectly justified in doing that because it helps you invent all these sorts of rationalizations as to why you deserve everything you want, why other people need to be punished for not giving you what you want, and like why you ought to be this rigid and aggressive until you get what you want. In other words, rage has a lot to do with entitlement, right? The mantra of rage is, I deserve, I'm owed, I have a right to. And in fact, anyone who gets in my way for any reason is the enemy. It positions you against the rest of the world. Now, when you live this way, you have a lot of enemies because not everybody sees the things the way you do or is moving in the direction that you're moving or interprets things, everything the way that you do. So this causes a lot of problems. But the problem that we experience most often in this is that the more rage rolls around in our hearts, the more infuriatingly entitled it makes us feel. And we reinforce it by replaying it repetitively over and over again in our minds until it becomes a staple part of our personality until you actually become defined more by who and what you hate than who and what you're for and who and what you love. And this becomes what people see and experience when they experience you, your rage. And when all this stuff is locked up in your heart, you know what happens? It starts to spill out of your mouth and apparently also your social media page, okay? It, it just, it's coming out of everywhere, right? <laughs> In fact, Jesus, Jesus says this. He says this much elsewhere. In Luke chapter uh, uh, six, verse 45, he says, what you say flows from what is in your heart. Why did you type that? Why did you post that? Why did you send that? Why did you say that? Because it's been in there the whole time. It's been sort of like you've been mulling on it. It's been sort of just like marinating in your soul. And now it's bleeding out. In fact, Jesus seems to think this is such a big deal that back in the Sermon on the Mount, as soon as he says like, listen, if you're angry, you can also be held to judgment. He goes on to say something that is just, he takes it even way deeper. Listen to this. You're going to want to write this down and quote it to your kids. 
Matthew chapter five, verse 22, he says, if you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Right, if we thought the first part was intense, it just gets more and more intense as you go, right? You call someone a name, you're going to prison, right? It's like, whoa. And in fact, if you curse someone, right, you, you actually might be in danger of hell itself. What, what does that even mean? Okay, the, the words that are, are translated in English to idiot and curse, they're Greek words. They're the Greek words, raka and moros. And this is what they mean together, okay? They mean empty-headed, stupid, moronic, mindless, thoughtless, a blind follower, a sheep. That's not relevant to anything happening today, is it? How many posts did you see this morning with this exact language in it? Calling people idiots, morons, thoughtless, mindless. Blind followers, stupid sheep. This is exactly what Jesus is calling out. Why does he care about this though? Like when you think of name calling, are you like me where you think of like, isn't that kid stuff? Where you're just like, don't say that. Don't call your brother that, right? Why is he, why does he choose, right? Jesus has just given the Beatitudes. He's established himself as an authority. He's like, I'm gonna reinterpret what God, it's important to God, what God means by this stuff. And he starts with murder and he jumps to rage, internal rage, and then he instantly goes to name calling. Why? Why is that such a big deal to him? I think it's because Jesus understands that name calling diminishes and dehumanizes. It's a way of distancing ourselves from someone by recategorizing them as something that's not like us, someone that's not like us, maybe not even as someone at all. It's a way of telling ourselves they're not a living, breathing, feeling human being, fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. They're an idiot. They're evil. They're horrible. They're subhuman. They're a sheep. And here's what happens. Once I have been able to dehumanize you, I can justify doing what I think I need to to dispose of you. And this is why Jesus connects name-calling with anger and rage with ultimately murder because they are connected. Did you know that like throughout all of human history, in every society in which mass genocide took place, it all started with name-calling. Think about just some of the most famous cases of this, right? Nazi Germany. The Nazis called the Jews rats, subhuman, right? In, in Rwanda, during the giant genocide that took place there, the Hutus called the Tutsis cockroaches, Right, even throughout American history, we have made people groups subhuman. In fact, like slave owners called their black slaves a word that you and I both know I can't say on this microphone right now because we all understand it's wrong and it leads to violence. It leads to dehumanization. It leads to us not seeing people as God intended, as 
as, as people that he loves and made and created in his image. Jesus understands that, that name-calling is a symptom of seeing someone as soulless or subhuman. But ultimately, like a rat and a cockroach, th- that, that's, those aren't people groups to be loved and protected. Those are vermin to be exterminated. When we begin to shift our mindset and begin labeling people in this way, it gives us permission to do what's next. Now, Jesus is not the only one that talked about this. And if he was, that would be enough. But in fact, this gets repeated over and over again in the New Testament. In fact, one of the the authors of the New Testament who wrote a lot of it echoes this idea and and he connects the dots again between anger and our words, and and ultimately violence. This is what he says, Ephesians chapter four, verse 26. It's the apostle Paul, and he's writing to one of the first Christian churches, and he uses space to talk about the same deal that Jesus does. He starts off by saying this, don't sin by letting anger control you. Now, like, what kind of anger is he talking about? As it turns out, he's talking about the same kind of anger Jesus is. He's talking about rage, excessive, misdirected, vengeful expressions of your own bruised ego. And why does he tell us not to let it control us? He says, because anger gives a foothold to the devil. What does does that mean, right? It's like this idea that like somebody knocks and you're just like, what's that? And they, they put the foot in the door. You know what I'm talking about? That's the moment, right? During the scary movie where you're like, they're done. They're done. Why did you answer the door? That's what the peephole is for. You don't open it unless the chain's on, right? Because somebody could get a foot in the door. What would it mean to get a foothold in? It's gonna lead to something more drastic, more devastating, like what? Well, if you believe Jesus, like murder. But on the way to murder, usually rage stops off at some other things, like the way we talk to and about other people. This is what he says in verse 29. Ephesians chapter four, don't use foul or abusive language. Like what? Like name calling and cursing other people, like referring to people that you don't like or you don't agree with as, you know, stupid and moronic and idiots and fools and sheep. Exactly. Instead, he says this, verse 29, let everything you say be good and helpful Now, this word that's translated as everything comes from this Greek word that means everything. Sometimes it's just a straight over, like it's just exactly one for one, okay? So you're like, what could that mean? Everything, right? Everything you say, be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And then he goes on to say this. So get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander. Now, when I hear this, I'm like, that sounds familiar. Anybody else think like, wait, when you hear them back to back, does it almost sound like this is just a straight up ripoff, like a plagiarism of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? Like is any teacher pulling it up and just being like, you stole those quotes from Jesus, okay? Yeah, you sort of made it feel a little bit like you, but that's just Jesus stuff. And here's the thing, we are meant to notice that it's similar because it is on purpose, it's, it's this author's way of saying what, what early Christians said over and over and over again. This stuff is so important. If you don't grab hold of it, you will miss the crux of the Jesus movement. 
maybe you're thinking like, okay, so hypothetically, okay, this isn't about me, but I have a friend, all right? Let's say I have a friend who notices they might have just a skosh of like bitterness and rage and anger. Like maybe they like call names sometimes or like, so like, I mean, don't go on my Facebook page, but it's not about me, but it's like, uh, they, what if I have somebody, what, what do I, what do I do? Because now I'm starting to feel like, like, like that's not great. And, and Jesus goes on to say in his sermon, this Matthew chapter five, verse 23, he says, so for example, if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, like you're fighting with somebody, leave your sacrifice there at the altar and go and be reconciled to that person and then come back and offer your sacrifice to God. Then he jumps into another thing. He's like, or like maybe you're on your way to court with your adversary. Like somebody's mad because you didn't pay them or you didn't do it. You have this thing against them. Settle your differences quickly. He goes on to say, like, hopefully before you even get there. And the thing that jumps out to me in this is just the, like, how he's really putting a focus on immediacy and urgency. If you suddenly remember, get up right then and go take care of it. If you are on your way somewhere else and you have a realization, stop and quickly make amends. It's like this idea that like, as soon as you recognize it in your heart, get it out. As soon as you notice that that rage is rumbling around in there, purge it. Here's what's crazy. This is gonna blow your guys' mind. The Ephesians guy says the same thing. Ephesians chapter four, verse 26, maybe you've heard this. His version is this. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. Between these two people, what we're hearing is, don't let a day go by. Don't let a church service go by. Don't even let your drive time on your way to the thing go by without you addressing the rage that's hidden within you. Now, why, why is this a big deal for you? Because maybe you're just like, listen, I'm not a murderer. <laughs> okay, like, I, I wouldn't kill anybody, all right? And that's probably true for like 98% of you, okay? Someone in here is definitely, just the, uh, the numbers, okay? Statistically, one of you is capable of killing. That's all I'm saying, okay? We're not gonna point it out, but they're definitely in this section, okay? Listen, let's not get wrapped up in that, all right? But maybe you're just like, I'm not, like, so why is this important for me? Because in truth, God wants us to rid rage from our hearts with a sense of urgency, not just because of what you might do, but because of what it's already doing to you. It's not just where it might lead. It's, it's about the damage it's already done and is continuing to do, not in other people, but deep inside your own heart because it eats away at your insides. It steals your peace, your balance, and your wholeness. And then Jesus, he goes on from, from this little teaching and he, and he starts talking about all these other ideas. He does the same thing um, with a, a host of other subjects. He does what he did for murder with adultery and divorce and vows and revenge and persecution. In every case, he does the same thing. He says, this is an expectation that we are all aware of, okay? And like to, to do that means this. 
And here's why it means that. Let me show you, right? Let me demonstrate it for you. Let me practice what I'm preaching in front of you so you know I'm serious. And now mimic what I modeled. Like go and do the same. Because in Jesus' mind, what you do and what you mean to do both matter, right? Jesus wants us to move past just regulating our actions to redirecting our intentions. He wants his followers to commit both their outer and their inner lives to him. And maybe you're thinking like, well, that, when you say it like that, it sounds like a lot. I mean, it's like, that's just a lot of, he wants everything is the word you're looking for, yeah. And that, that's, not, that's not an exaggeration, right? Like he just comes out and says it, right? In fact, when Jesus is asked what is most important, like what is the meaning of life? Like how does one tap in to the fulfillment that we're searching for, right? To shalom, how do we gain access to it? And he says this, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And while you're at it, love your neighbor as yourself. That sounds like everything to me, right? The outer and the inner. And do you have to do this? No. You are free to do whatever you want. This is the gift that God gives us. Complete freedom. But what he is saying is, if you want to experience a sense of divine peace, balance, and wholeness in the here and now, you are going to have to submit both your actions and your intentions to God. There's no way around it. And why would we do that? Let's go back to the Ephesians guy because he's, he's, full, of, he's full of brilliance. He says this, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. He says, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. In other words, he's saying like, listen, you don't do any of the things I'm telling you to do to earn God's love. You do it because you already have been given God's love. And when you accept it and experience it in your own life, when you truly tuck it into your soul, when you fully grasp it, it transforms you. And it begins to spill out of you. When that's what you're meditating on, when that's what you're obsessing over, when that's what you're replaying in your heart of hearts, that's what pours out of everything you say, do, and post. God wants other people to experience his love through you. Because in Jesus' mind, this is how we save the world. We don't save the world through rage and name-calling and cursing. We don't even save the world, according to Jesus, through lawmaking. We save the world through kindness and tenderness and forgiveness. And there's part of us that wants to push back against that. We want to give license to our rage. We want what we want. We want to make it so. And Jesus is saying, like, that's not my way. That's not what I'm doing. That's not how I do things. This is how we save the world. And 
I think if you look deep, you know it's true because isn't this what saved you? That you came to experience the kindness and tenderness and forgiveness of God. It was so different than anything else you'd ever experienced, and it changed you. It transformed you. It wowed you, and there was something about it that compelled you to be and live differently. A lot of times, people look at this, this stuff, and they think like, well, yeah, but that's like, that's just like an ideal. Like, Jesus didn't expect people to do it. I don't think that we can brush it off that easily, because when people hurled insults and called names and expressed their rage towards Jesus. And when that rage graduated and became violent, Jesus did not fight back in the same way that anger dictates. Jesus allows himself to be crucified by the people who hate him. And in the midst of that moment, he forgives them. And then he tells his followers, if anybody wants to be my follower, if anybody wants to make me their rabbi, you are going to have to deny yourself. You're gonna to have to say no to your selfish, anger-filled impulses. You're gonna to have to pick up your cross and follow me. Mimic what I modeled for you. This is how we change the world. I'll tell you, if Christians really grab a hold of the message of Jesus, it does change the world because it's so different than the way every other kingdom works. This is what we are called to. This is what we are loyal to and allegiant to. And maybe you're thinking like, I don't know if I can do that. And here's the thing. You can't without God's help. Here's a profound thing, right? You can't even follow Jesus without the help of Jesus. You can't even obey God without God empowering you to obey him. And this is why we are constantly in a humble position towards God. And this is why I wanna pray this into your life today, that wherever you're at in your connection to Jesus, maybe you're just like, you're still wrestling around with like, do I even believe in God? Or maybe you're like, I thought I did, but I don't know if I've been following. I'll trust him with my afterlife, but not with my actual life. I don't know where you're at on on that whole sphere. But like, I gotta tell you, I, I wanna pray that God would move in your life in a radical, real way, because I do know this, God wants for you peace, balance, and wholeness. And this is the way. Would you bow your heads with me across this room as I pray? God, thank you so much for every person in this place. God, I know you see our hearts. I know you see our lives. You know what we've been through. God, you know all the ways that we have been mistreated, used, and abused. All of the, the rage that tends to build up inside of us because of what has happened to us. And yet, it is not turning us into the kind of person that we want to be, that you made us to be. And so, God, in this moment, I pray that we would experience an intervention from you that focuses us on who you are and who you've made us to be so that we can follow you forward. God, I pray that you would put an end to the bitterness and rage and anger that exists within us 
as it relates to all sorts of subjects. And God, that your peace, your balance, your wholeness would reign in our hearts, that we would extend kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness in ways that have people saying about us, they must know Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.